Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. The one thing I really want to encourage you as um, you continue on the leadership of Brother Amory, uh, I believe it's the book of Acts chapter 17. The Bible talks about the Bereans. And the Bereans were um, some Christians who and listen to the Apostle Paul, the Bible said they didn't take what Paul said necessarily because he was Paul, this majestic apostle. But the Bible says they searched the scriptures for themselves to confirm what Paul said was true, right? And one of the things I want to encourage you as you go on to do is when you come to church, to bring a pen and paper and take notes for this reason. Always, I don't want to say suspicious, but always go back and confirm for yourself whether or not what the person who's standing here says is in fact true or correct. And the only way to do that is to measure what the person says has been true or correct against what the Bible says. That's what the Bereans did. And the toll is that that's a standard for which we as Christians ought to evaluate the things that we hear from the pulpit, whether it be this pulpit or any other pulpit, is that it doesn't matter what Gordon Heifel says, it really matters truthfully but what is the word that the Lord says? And um, today, so I want to talk to you today for the, I think what Amory says, I can go until noon today, so. Um, oh, that's not, okay, all right. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, today I want to talk to you about a story most, if not all of you, are familiar with. It's a story about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story is told to us in the text of Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through chapter 19, verse 29. And while those texts will be my foundational texts, don't worry, we're not going to read all of them. However, I'd like for us to read together Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 3. If you don't mind, I'm going to read from the, I think the NIV version that I have here. So we read Genesis 18, 1 through 3, then Genesis 18, verses 16 through 21, and then the very next chapter, 19, 1 through 7. 18, 1 through 3 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. And then we're going to read 16 through 21 of 18, Genesis 18. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And then 19, Genesis 1 through 7. And the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city when he saw them. He got up to meet them, and bowed down his, with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet 
and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Okay. Now, contained within those, what I'm calling my foundational texts, so all of Genesis 18.1 through Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, are three subdivisions within those texts. The first one is from chapter 18, 1 through 15, where the Bible tells us the Lord appears to Abraham while Abraham was at Mamre. Number two was Abraham interceded, intercedes on behalf of the people of Sodom. And we'll talk about that, and that's in chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. And then finally, number three is that Sodom is destroyed as Lot and his family are rescued. Now, to many of us here today, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a familiar, a very familiar one. Perhaps you're aware of the historical debates and discussions that are taking place about the cause or perhaps the causes of the destruction. Conceivably, some of you here are involved in that conversation at work, in your family, with friends, about this modern day, and as I say, ever-changing debates and discussion in the body of Christ, and sometimes outside the body of Christ, and what were the cause or the causes of the divine judgment on these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, however, my message is not meant to be a contribution to the debate that's taking place out there or in the body of Christ about what caused God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But while I remain firmly convinced, firmly convinced that the biblical text both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is clear on the reasons for the divine judgment. That is not the pivotal point of my discussion with you today. I want to talk to you instead about the abiding lessons taught to us from the text about the divine destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. After all, the Apostle Paul said to us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instructions so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. So, for those of you like me who need a title, because, you know, when I go to church and I hear a pastor's going to preach, I want to say, all right, what's the title? Because I like to evaluate the message from the context of the title. And so my title today is, What Abiding Lessons Can a Modern World Learn from the Ancient but the Divine Judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah? What abiding lessons can a modern world learn from the ancient but the divine judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm just going to pray for a few moments. Lord, thank you this morning, God, for this great opportunity, this privilege to stand here with your people to share your words, God. I ask you this morning, God, give us eyes to see, give us hear, hearts to hear. Give us, O oh God, Spirit, where our hearts, O oh God, are like fallowed ground, ready to be plowed by your words. Change us, O oh God, that we become better people, better men, better women, not simply for the cause of being better, O oh God, but help us that our lives become transformed, O oh God, that we become missional people, people who understand our responsibility, O oh God, of the Great Commission to go to make disciples of all nations, O oh God, I ask you, God, as we do so, help us to go forth with the understanding that, God, as you said to us, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto you, O God. And as we go with that understanding that you are with us, O God, remind us as life happens to us that, God, through all the ups and downs of life, you are with us because, God, you providentially care for us, O God. And so today as we open up the word, let us open our hearts unto you that, God, you will speak through us and speak to us, O God. 
We love you. We thank you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I mentioned earlier now, there, there are three subdivisions that are contain, contained within the foundation text that I read. And while I mention what those divisions are, the lesson today that I want to talk to you about is three things. Number one, the sovereignty of God. Number two, prayers make a difference. And number three, pride always goes before destruction. When I mention God, the word sovereignty, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think of what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God. And here's why. The great American theologian A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The question that we confront in life or that life confronts us with is this. Can God be trusted with my life? Can God be trusted with my life? Do you believe that the God that we talk about is a God that's even knowable? Can I know anything about this God? And can I trust him with my life? This concept about the sovereignty of God, we could spend months, perhaps years, discussing. Christians are all over the smorgasbord in the meaning and the application of this concept of the sovereignty of God. In fact, I was telling Brother Amory a few this morning that it had been, I think, 15 to 20 years after I had become what we call ourselves, what I call myself, a Pentecostal Christian before I ever heard the concept of the sovereignty of God. And when I first heard this term, the sovereignty of God, in the circle that I ran, run, I didn't know what it meant. Never understood the concept of the sovereignty of God. In fact, this concept about the sovereignty of God has been debated in Christianity for generations, generations. In some Christian circles, this idea is rarely discussed. Perhaps I'll go even as far as to say somewhat discredited. But why? Why? Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. 2 Samuel, verse 7 and 22. Let's see, what does it say? There we see um, David is praying, and he says, How great are you, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. There is no God like you, for thou art sovereign. And so the question that we're confronted with as we debate and discuss and grapple with the meaning of the word sovereignty, we recognize there's a lot of tension and issues when we talk about the sovereignty of God. But let's see what the Bible tells us about God. Keeping in mind, as I said, the question that Mr. Do the, the theologian A.W. Tozer asked, what comes into mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We're told in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians 1.17, we're told that God is before all things. In Psalm chapter 90, verses 2, we're told from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In Revelations chapter 22, verse 13, he is called the first. In Revelations chapter 21, verse 6, he is referred to as the beginning and the end. In Revelations chapter 1, verse 8, he is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. In Colossians 1:16, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven, and he does whatsoever pleaseth him. Psalm 135 and 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Psalm 139.4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 1 Chronicles 20.29, 20, the text tells us, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Jesus tells us, the writer of Luke tells us in Luke 5.22, and Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Why are you thinking these things? Now, follow me with some texts. I'm going to ask you 1 Chronicles chapter 29, because again, as we try to understand the context and the meaning of this word sovereignty, I don't want it to be what, what Gordon says sovereignty means. Let's look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 12. 1 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. So let's look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 11 through 12. This is when having a Bible with, um, what you call those things, but in the, the index. Ooh, can be so helpful. But look what it says, First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12. Can someone, who has it can read it for us? What does it say? Yes. So, so these verses tell us about God that <laughs> greatness and power and all the glory and majesty for everything in heaven and everything on earth is the Lord's. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 14 through 17. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 14 through 17. What does that text say? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your heart, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. All right. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, so 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. And finally, to see who or what is under God's sovereignty? What does Psalm verses 50, 10, and 11 says? Psalm verses 50, verses 10 through 11. Psalm 
So Psalm 50, 10 through 11 says this. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle in a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. Now here's God who's saying to us, every animal he is, belongs to him, every cattle is his, even the insects are his. And so, so we see that from reading these texts, not only is the heavens and the earth God sovereignly reigns over, not only birds and insects, but me and you, human beings. He's sovereignly in charge of us. Now, so we see that from those texts that not only is God omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, he knows everything, because Christ says even before you speak a word out of your mouth, I know, you're, I know what you're going to say, and omnipresent in that he's here right now and he's out of places. I suspect, though, that when we consider these texts about the Bible, it is not God's omnipotence that we struggle with. For clearly, we want to know that we serve a God that is all-powerful. We want to know that when life happens to us, when life is not as we expect and there is pain and anguish and the bills are not being paid or enemies come against us, we want to know, we want to be able to turn to the God that David talks about when David says, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foe attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. And that's Psalm chapter 27, verse 2 through 3. So that confidence in who or what? Confidence, David talks about, in an omnipotent God. So we want a God who is all-powerful. The question becomes this then. If God is all-powerful, if God is omniscient, and God is omnipresent, does God therefore have the right to determine for me and you what is right and what is wrong? In fact, isn't he in a much better position than we are to even determine what is right and what is wrong. So perhaps I suspect then that the attribute of God's sovereignty that we struggle with then is not his omnipotence, but rather his omniscience. That word with the prefix omni, O-M-N-I, simply means all. And then the word science simply means knowledge. So that together when we put the word omniscient, it means all-knowing, a God that is all-knowing. Now, I want to hasten to say here that God's knowledge is qualitatively different from my knowledge and yours, qualitatively different, as he himself is qualitatively different from you and I. As the author Pierce Hibbs tells us, an example of this qualitative difference between me and God, you and God, is the fact that we do not have the ability to create things from our speech. We know that God did when God simply said in Genesis, let there be, and there was. You and I don't have that, that ability to speak things into existence. That is a power only God has. But even here, because we are made in God's image, there, there are creaturely derivatives that point back to this creative capacity of God's speech. So, for example, you and I can forge relationships with our words. Every time we meet a stranger, we have the opportunity to use that God-given power of language, of speech, to begin to form a relationship with that person. We can use language, too, when building up our existing relationships with our family members and our friends and our spouses. So language for humans has been endowed by God with a creative or a shaping power that images God's all-powerful speech on a creaturely level. 
So, given God's eternal nature, though, he knows the beginning from the end. And as we told in Ephesians 1, 11, and he therefore works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that God's knowledge and his wisdom are inseparable. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Nevertheless, though, if God is sovereign, or if God in his sovereignty is all-knowing, the question becomes this. How can human beings then exercise free will? If God is all-powerful, how can I or you as a human being exercise free will? How can we really indeed exercise free choices? In other words, if I make free choices, which includes the possibility to make good or evil decisions, for which I am responsible, then God cannot be in complete control over the world and all in it. And if he's sovereign, then why am I accountable for the choices I make? If God is sovereign, why am I and you accountable for the choices you make? Theologian Richard Pratt responded to this grappling complexity between divine sovereignty and human responsibility when he said this. God's control of things is not contrary to the responsibility of man. It is the very foundation of it. If God were not in control, he could not hold man responsible. Man is accountable to God because God is sovereign, and he should obey God because God is in control of all things. Moreover, man has significance because God is sovereign, because God has sovereignly ordained significance for man. So whatever responsibility we have is founded on God's sovereignty, not in spite of it. So that without God's sovereignty, man would have no responsibility. One of the best and classic examples of the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, you're familiar with the, the biblical story of Joseph, who, as many theologians tell, you know, the story of Joseph who had this wonderful coat that his dad gave to him that caused the brothers to feel jealous and the brothers were going to kill him. But Reuben said, no, don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And it just so happened that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers who happened to be bought by a caravan of people who happened to be going on the way to Egypt, who Joseph happened to be placed in a jail where there was a baker and a butler who knew Pharaoh. It just so happened that there was a famine in the land except for Egypt. And it just so happened that Pharaoh took Joseph, this Jewish boy, and made him second in charge. And as you know the story that at one point, 70 people went into Egypt, and 400 years later, over 3 million people emerged as a nation. And as you know, in Genesis chapter 50, verses 20, when finally Joseph unveils himself to his brothers, now that their dad has died, and his brothers are now terrified as they stood before this brother that they had sold years ago, and they began to plead with Joseph. And Joseph said these words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, when I said earlier about being like the Bereans and looking at the text for yourself, I've heard many preachers take that sentence that the Bible says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and change it to say what you meant for evil, God used for good. It's a very subtle distinction, but it's a crucial one for this reason. If we take and say what you meant for evil, God used for good, it's suggesting that somehow God was caught by surprise. Somehow the things that the brothers did caught God unawares, and because of what they did, God said, let me, let, me, let, me, let me run to plan B, now that the brothers have done something that I never expected to be done, let me go to plan B and take it and make something good out of this bad situation. 
or is the saying go make lemonade out of, I think, lemon is what the statement is saying. But that's not what the Bible says. Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so as you look back at the story of the life of Joseph, all the way back from the simple giving of a coat, a coat of many colors, you can see repeatedly in all the stories that happened to Joseph, God's sovereignty at work, moving and shaping the lives of these men and women to accomplish God's will. But make no mistake about it, though, as Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, so that as God's sovereignty operated behind the scenes, the brothers were so ultimately responsible for the sin of selling their brother into slavery. Still responsible. Now, today's humanity cry is not so much about free will or not. The cry today that you hear going on in our society is you look at all the things that happen socially. The cry is this, I want to be autonomous. I want to be autonomous. The word autonomous comes from the combination of the words auto and nomos, where the word auto means self, nomos from the Greek word means law. Thus, in the ethical realm, autonomy means adherence only to the self-regulated morality and complete freedom from any external compulsion or restraint. I want the right to do whatever I want to do with my life. This is my body, and I'll do whatever I want to do with my body. This is my life, and you, nor God, or whoever he is, no one has the right to tell me what to do with my life. And so the issue is not the tension between God's sovereignty and free will. It has come down to the point now where it's a question of autonomy. As the post-World War II philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre talked about, if God does in fact exist, Sartre argues, man cannot be free. Because Sartre believed that this Christian concept of God who's sovereign, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, if he does exist, Sartre believes that man cannot be free. Because in Sartre's mind, freedom meant the ability to do whatever you want to do, where you yourself are the only governor or regulator of your own conduct. And so today, that's the cry. So as such, the individual wants to be sovereign. He wants to be free to pursue whatever he reasons or intuits to be right, and to reject any and all authority outside of the self. Make no mistake, the power of free choice has always been inborn in the fabric of the created humanity. We see evidence of this in the command that God gave Adam and Eve when he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to eat from all the trees except refrain from doing so to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And so we see from way back then, even before the fall, God gave us the ability to make choices. Because God, if we didn't have the choice, to, 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 the freedom to make choices, God could not have said to them, one, be fruitful and multiply. That's a voluntary act. And two, eat from all the trees except this one. The fact that God would, would say that says to them that I am God in my sovereignty, reserve the right to tell you what's right from wrong. Do whatever you want, except don't eat from this particular tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what that presupposes is the ability of us to think rationally, think logically, and to be obedient as we exercise free will. Now, some have argued that humans had the ability to make free choices but that ability was severely damaged, if not completely removed or destroyed after the fall. However, even after the fall, even after the fall, we see man exercising free will and being accountable for doing so. As we're told in Romans 6 and 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Here the Apostle Paul getting involved in this conversation and the discussion about whether or not even after the fall in the garden do we still have the build to make choices, to make free will, exercise our free will. Clearly from the text from the Apostle Paul, the answer is yes. Thus, from the biblical evidence, we understand that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are perfectly consistent even if we don't always understand how. Even if we don't always understand how. And I know that even from reading the text or from your own life, you can perhaps think of times when there is this tension between what you wanted to do, what you've done, and whether or not God is indeed sovereign. In fact, there's been lots of debates in, in my spare time. I'm kind of blessed now. I'm, I'm in the grandparent stage now. So Paul and I and my wife are empty nesters now. And so, and Paul is a nurse, works 12-hour days. So when Paula goes to work and I'm home, I go to my study and I spend lots of hours just reading um, books. I like reading books. Uh, I like reading a lot about philosophy. And in the realm of philosophy where they've tried for years to stamp out God through this, these arguments, there's this big tension between free will and determinism and, you know, what or not... Um, if you push God's sovereignty to its logical extent, the questions are asked, and is God then the agent of sin? So, for example, if we say that God was working behind the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, which was a sinful act, was God the one who caused them to do that? Was God the direct cause of their action? In other words, were the actions already predetermined by God so that they had no choice in the matter? Now, one of the things, I was telling Brother Emery this morning, my great disappointment for myself in the years I've been a Christian is I didn't have the privilege of understanding deeply God's sovereignty and God's providence. Because if we can understand and accept that, yes, God is sovereignly in control of my life, but he's not a God like the Greek gods Poseidon and Zeus and those who capriciously moved and did things to the human beings if they had a bad day or something was going wrong. One of the things that I've learned over the years of really struggling with and grappling with God's sovereignty and God's providence is to always understand that God always exercises his authority, his providential, his sovereignty in a way that is both just and right in a way that's both just and right. And we'll see that as we come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how God sovereignly comes to this man, Abraham, and said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And you'll see there where the conversation takes place. And as you think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got to ask yourself this question. If God has already sovereignly determined that he was gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, why? allowed Abraham to engage in a conversation of debating and or discussing and or praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, was God playing games with Abraham? Was it a foregone conclusion no matter what Abraham did or said, I'm God, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but let me play some games with Abraham. Is that what was going on? So this brings us all the way back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the lessons for us today. God's control and authority over the world and all that therein demands our recognition of those facts and an acknowledgement that what God opposes is not the exercise of free will, but our desire, like our fathers in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, to be autonomous from God, where we reserve the right, we think, to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong irrespective of what God says. And as you look at life today, the issues that you and I deal with today in America are the same issues that were dealt with in the Garden of Eden. It's the simple and fundamental question, who deserves the right to tell me what is right from wrong? Is it the one who made me and who made the world and everything therein? Or is it me, Gordon Heichel, myself, because this is my life, this is my body, and I should determine for myself what is right and what's wrong. Now, 
So, the thing to understand about God's sovereignty always, always, is when God acts sovereignly, he governs himself by acting according to what is just and what is right. Nevertheless, my second point, prayer makes a difference. Prayer makes a difference. I know I asked the question about when we look where God invites Abraham into this conversation. And you and I know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, which is what? God did ultimately destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the question you have to ask yourself, and by the way, I want to say this to you, don't ever be afraid of asking God questions. In the book of Isaiah, God said to Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Life will happen to you sometimes where you have got to go to God and ask questions. And here's the thing I tell people all the time, don't ever think you can think of some question that God says, oh, Gordon, I never thought about that one. That's a good one. Let me get back to you. Never. Okay? So don't, don't ever be afraid to go to God with questions. Lot did. Jonah did. Abraham did. In fact, let me show you some texts here of people who did. Now, a most basic question then is, if God is in control of everything, then what possible difference can prayer make? If God knows the beginning from the end, and he's sovereign in heaven and the earth, among human beings, animals, and insects, what difference can prayer make? Anyone change God? He's in control, and he has already purpose in his heart what he's going to do. Why waste time praying? Well, first we pray because as 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, it is a divine command. It says, we are to pray without ceasing. So the first reason why we do is because the text says from God, we are to pray without ceasing. But we know, though, that anyone can approach God in prayer. Abraham approached God and talked to him. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and 19, 22 through 23, Moses spoke to God face to face. Hannah responded with her Magnificat when God answered her prayer and gave her a child. King Hezekiah lamented before God because of his sickness. Job argued with God throughout the book of Job. Jeremiah, often called the weeping prophet, suffered inner doubts and conflicts in what is called his tearful confessions throughout the book of Jeremiah. So we see that while God is sovereign and has the right to judge all things, again he does so in a manner that is just and right. So God does not keep Abraham in the dark about what he's about to do because the Bible tells us in the Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and in Genesis chapter 15, it is through Abraham and his descendants that God has chosen to bless all the nations. And so God has already charged Abraham to teach. And it is so crucial here at this point. God has already charged Abraham to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Notice that when you read the text, God makes it clear that understanding what is right and just is not a genetic process. You're not born into knowing what's right from wrong. God said he can't keep this thing from Abraham because God is already entrusted through Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham and his descendants, the nations of the world shall be blessed. And so we see that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a foregone conclusion. For example, look at the story of Jonah and Nineveh. The Bible says that God sends the prophet to go warn the Ninevites. And Jonah, after his struggling and finally decided to be obedient and go, he goes. And he tells them what God's going to do. And the king of Nineveh said, you know, maybe this guy here probably is saying it's true. Let's, let's change our behavior and let's change our ways and put on sackcloth and ashes. And they begin to turn from their ways. And you know the rest of the story in Jonah chapter 3, how Jonah began 
fussing and quarreling with God, saying, you see, I know you wasted my time because you knew you weren't going to destroy them anyway. Now you maybe go along there and talk to these wicked people. And keep in mind now, these are not Jewish people in Nineveh. These are the enemies of Israel that God sent Jonah to to warn them. And the Bible says in, in Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4, when God saw that they had changed their ways, the Bible said God relented against destroying them. And when Jonah began fussing and complaining with God, how can you save these wicked people? We're told in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, God said to them, to Jonah, how could I really destroy these people? There's over 120,000 people in this city, Jonah, who don't know their right hand from their left. And the, 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 the purpose of Jonah was to go forth and tell the people, thus saith the Lord, so that condition upon whether or not they were destroyed was their willingness to obey the message from Jonah to change their ways, to conform their behavior to what a sovereign God has a right to say, that behavior is wrong. And so as we begin looking at Exodus chapter 18, verses 16 through 22, if you can turn there with me, I want you to keep in mind that this is a serious and a judicial conversation between God and Abraham because Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction was not a foregone conclusion in the sense that God was playing games with Abraham as we saw how God changed his mind when it came to the story of Nineveh. But look at verse 18 of Genesis chapter 16. And there's, I want you to really understand this wonderful dialogue here taking place between God and this ordinary man, Abraham. It says in 16, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him. So keep in mind, notice, not just his family, but his household, servants and everyone in his house. To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so we see there where God decides, I can't hide from Abraham what I'm about to do because who Abraham represents for me and you today. So the messengers from heaven, the angels now, have been dispatched. They're finished with the first part of their business, as we learned when they met Abraham at Mamre. They extended to Abraham and Sarah grace when they talked about a child is going to come, and Sarah laughed. But now they have work to do, work of another nature. Sodom is to be destroyed, and they must do it. We see in, and that's in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, 13. We'll jump ahead in a sec. But here we see that as with the Lord, there is mercy. For he is the God to whom vengeance belongs, the Bible says. So vengeance belongs to the Lord. But here we see where God is inviting this man, Abraham. And I'll tell you this. When I, for years and years when I've read, and I've read over and over repeatedly, sort of Sodom and Gomorrah, this conversation between God and Abraham. And I struggled with, with understanding it because my struggle was I understood that God is sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And so there's no tomorrow. You and I can talk about tomorrow's Monday, I'm going to go to work. Tuesday, I'll do this. Wednesday, I'll do that, if the Lord's willing, as James said. But when God talks, there's no 
well, I'm going to do this tomorrow, you know. You know, you and I are time-bound beings that we're restricted to today. I can't be here in the, in the rec center and be home at the same time, physically. But God, God can. And so I struggled many times. Oh, God, come on now. If you're not going to destroy this thing, why even let Abraham get involved in this conversation with you? Come on, Lord, you know. And so I go and I reason with God. And I ask God those kinds of questions, you know. Now, I want you to look and see how good God is to us. Let's turn to, yeah, same 18, 23 through 33 of Genesis 18. And 23 says what? It says, Then Abraham approached him and said, And who's the him there that Abraham approached? Some believe it's um, the Lord. Some believe it's um, an epiphany of God. Some believe it's an angel. But Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The reason why Abraham can ask that question with God is that Abraham understood something about God's character. He understood that God is a God when he exercises. Notice now, he didn't ask God, do you really have the right to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, God? You know? We know in Genesis chapter 13, when there is this big separation between Abraham and Lot, Lot chose to pitch his tent to the well-watered plains of these five cities. There were actually five cities were destroyed, but we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah a lot. But even then in Genesis 13, the Bible says, but the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked. Genesis 13. And here we come now to Genesis 19, um, uh, 18, 23. And Abraham begins the question by saying to God, Will you really destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then he begins his conversation with God. What if there are 50 people? Are you going to sweep it away? And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. To me, this gives me real hope for this one of the things. The Bible says that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And we don't know many times why God is holding off his judgment upon the wicked wherever we live. What do we call it? The village, the city, the hamlet, or whatever it is, right? Here we see in Genesis 18, Abraham recognized that God could withhold judgment on a society. Now we're talking about five cities. And now think about this, five cities. And Abraham began with only 50 people. What are there 50 people in these five cities that are righteous? You can destroy this 50 righteous with the wicked. And what does God say? 26. Then the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now, notice what he said. Now, listen to how, I don't want to say deprecating, but reverential he is in understanding he, Abraham and who he's actually talking to. And the fact that God is gracious enough to even invite him into this judicial process where God is weighing the evidence to determine, is, there, is the outcry that I'm hearing up here so bad that it's time for judgment? Because one of the things we've got to learn about God is this. If God is just, if God is just, then his justice demands there has to be punishment for sin. Otherwise, he's not just. If God simply sits back on the couch or the chair, whatever, and simply allows sin to run rampant without justice, then God cannot be just. He cannot be a just God. So Abraham understands this, and so Abraham is not saying, God, they're, they're not wicked or evil. What Abraham is doing is pleading for who? He's pleading for the whole cities, but on the basis of what? The righteous people who may live there or not. So he begins with 50, and God said, yep, if you find 50, I'm not going to destroy Sodom. Conversation goes on. Then he spoke again. Now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if it was 45? 
Once again, then the Lord says, Fortify, I'm not going to destroy it. 29, he spoke again. What if there's 40? And God said what? I will not destroy it. And then he recognized, maybe he's kind of, I won't say pushing God, but he's really probing and pushing here, he, Abraham. He's being an intercessor. He's interceding in God, with God on behalf of a wicked nation because Abraham believes that prayers can make a difference. Then he says, may, this is verse 30, May the Lord not be angry, but, but let, let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20? And the Lord said, if you can find, now I want you to imagine this, in five cities, God is saying if you can find 20 righteous people among five cities, I'm going to spare them. Then Abraham said in verse 32, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10? Now, to me, this is really staggering. And a, a good example of God's mercy that he's willing to go as low as if there are 10 people in five cities. So, average of two righteous persons per city. We're Thousands of people live. God said, for that sake, I'm not going to destroy them. Now, I've read this, and um, the Bible says, as you read about Sodom, the outcry was great. We know that there are some sins and the sins of some sinners that cry aloud out to heaven. I've heard preachers said over the years that if God doesn't come back soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because the wickedness that we are part of today far exceeds that of what Sodom and Gomorrah was judged for. The thing I want you to really see though about Abraham, and the Bible, you know, we went on and where he stopped, I believe it's at five is where he stopped. And then conversation ended between he and God is that Abraham understood that there is a benefit to intercessory prayer that prayer can make a difference on behalf of the our families and the places where God has placed us because I believe with all my heart that it's not by accident that you are sitting here today that we're sitting here in Wiley Rec Center today it's not by accident God has put us where he's placed us in our communities, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, to be intercessors on behalf of a lost and dying world. That's our responsibility. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 18.23, the Lord says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And so we see the God that we serve is not a vengeful, bloodthirsty God out to get bad people, even Christians. He don't sit there with a big stick waiting to whack you because he said in Ezekiel, I don't delight in the death of even wicked people. God's desire is that men and women accept, as we know today, the work that Christ has done for us, the redemptive work that Christ has done for us. So Abraham knows that, yes, in spite of the wickedness of this place, I can intercede on their behalf and that my prayer can make a difference in God saving his people. Job tells us in Job 34, verses 10 and 11, he says, So listen to me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings in them what their conduct deserves. And so God, in exercising his sovereignty, deals with us according to our conduct. Again, recognizing that you and I are free will agents operating within a context where, yes, God is sovereign. 
but I'm still humanly responsible for my conduct. And that is going to be a mystery, always, that we'll never be able to finally say, aha, I do understand the spheres of God's sovereignty and the sphere of my, my free will. Always in a, an overlapping process where you and I will spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how is God sovereign and how am I free? The ultimate and the answer I want to give to you is simply this, as I turn to my final point, that pride goes before destruction is simply this. Yes, you and I are free and will be held accountable by God for the things that we do. My final point is this, pride goes before destruction. It is true that yes, all sin, all sin begins in the heart and then works their way outward. James tells us that. So we know that the outward sins that we commit mirror or comes from an inside, an inward desire. Consequently, if one covets in his heart or her heart, it can lead to stealing. If one hates someone, that can lead to murder. If one lusts after someone, that can lead to sexual immorality. Jesus taught his disciples this very thing when he said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth comes from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, not eating with unwashing hands. Consequently, yes, pride is a source of many sins because it effectively operates to say, I want what I want regardless of what God says and regardless of the cost to someone else. It's about me. And if that lustful passion is for, as it was in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, for unnatural desires, as Jude 1.7 terms it, then that can lead to homosexual behavior. For this reason, Paul says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another, men committing shameless act with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1, 26 to 28. So yes, Sodom was judged for that particular sin, which flowed from pride, which also led to cruelties and exploitations of their fellow human beings. The biblical text does state that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was sexual immorality and pride. The first was the outworking of the second. God can and does judge upon the motives of the heart, but he can and does also judge on the physical actions that we commit. But we must keep in mind that God was also ready to show mercy. As Abraham's intercessory prayer demonstrated, had there been as little as 10 righteous people in the city, God would have spared it. As we learn from 18, Genesis 18:32, As it was, only four people left Sodom alive, Sodom and Gomorrah alive, but only three made it to safety. Four left, only three made it to safety. In conclusion, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3, 8, and 9, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And First Peter tells us 2, 1 through 5, so put away all malice and deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted 
that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today about the lessons of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and the thing that I take away from it most is this, that we serve a God that is sovereign, a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And I was telling Brother Emery today, if we as Christians can grab a hold and accept that simple concept, that when God acts sovereignly, that he providentially cares for me and you, he's not willy-nilly like you and I are. I could be mad with Paula today and not talk to her for a couple of hours and stuff like that because I'm mad with her and vice versa. Well, she can do it for days. Um, <laughs> uh, but God isn't like that, though. You know, he providentially cares for us. And when, if we can just understand and accept his sovereignty is always exercised, governed by the principle of what is always just and what is always right. God wants the best for us. But the question is, does he reserve the right to tell me what is right from wrong, or do I reserve that right? Thank you very much. Good Emory. <laughs>